Zarathustra's Prologue, Part 5 When Zarathustra had spoken these words, he looked at the people again and was silent. There they stand, he said to his heart. There they laugh. They do not understand me. I am not the mouth for these ears. Must one first smash their ears before they learn to hear with their eyes? Must one rumble like kettle drums and preachers of repentance? Or do they only believe a stammerer? They have something of which they are proud. But what do they call that which makes them proud? Culture, they call it. It distinguishes them from goat herds. Therefore, they dislike hearing the word despising said of them. So now I will speak to their pride. So I will speak to them of what is most despicable. And that is the last human. And thus spoke Zarathustra to the people. The time has now come for the human to set a goal for itself. The time has now come for the human to plant the seed of its highest hope. Its soil is still rich enough for that. But this soil will someday become poor from cultivation and no tall tree will be able to grow from it. Alas, the time will come when the human will no longer shoot the arrow of its yearning over beyond the human, and the string of its bow will have forgotten how to whirr. I say to you, one must still have chaos within in order to give birth to a dancing star. I say to you, you still have chaos within you. Alas, the time will come when the human will give birth to no more stars. Alas, there will come the time of the most despicable human, who is no longer able to despise itself. Behold, I show to you the last human. What is love? What is creation? What is yearning? What is a star? Thus asks the last human, and then blinks. For the earth has now become small, and upon it hops the last human, who makes everything small. Its race is as inexterminable as the ground flea. The last human lives the longest. We have contrived happiness, say the last humans, and they blink. They have left the regions where the living was hard, for one needs the warmth. One still loves one's neighbor and rubs up against him, for one needs the warmth. To fall ill and harbor mistrust is in their eyes sinful. One must proceed with care. A fool, whoever still stumbles over stones or humans. A little poison now and then, that makes for agreeable dreams, and a lot of poison at the end, for an agreeable dying. One continues to work, for work is entertainment, but one takes care, lest the entertainment become a strain. One no longer becomes poor or rich, both are too burdensome. Who wants to rule anymore? Who wants to obey? Both are too burdensome. No herdsmen in one herd. Everyone wants the same thing. Everyone is the same. Whoever feels differently,
goes voluntarily into the madhouse. Formerly the entire world was mad, say their finest, and they blink. One is clever and knows all that has happened, so there is no end to their mockery. One still quarrels, but one soon makes up, else it is bad for the stomach. One has one's little pleasure for the day and one's little pleasure for the night, but one honors good health. We have invented happiness, say the last humans, and they blink. And here ended Zarathustra's first speech, which is also called the prologue. For at this point, the clamor and delight of the crowd interrupted him. Give us this last human, O Zarathustra, so they cried. Turn us into these last humans. Then we give you the overhuman. And the people all jubilated and clucked with their tongues. But Zarathustra became sad and said to his heart, They do not understand me. I'm not the mouth for these ears. Too long have I lived in the mountains and too much have I listened to streams and trees. Now I talk to them as to goat herds. Unmoved is my soul, and bright as the mountains in the morning. But they think I am cold, and a mocker in fearful antics. And now they behold me and laugh. And even as they laugh, they still hate me. There is ice in their laughter. Hey everyone, and welcome to Zarathustra's Prologue, Section 5. This is the third section where Zarathustra is really talking about the overhuman. In Sections 3 and 4, we sort of met Zarathustra's idea of what the overhuman is, some of the characteristics of the type of human beings that Zarathustra likes and that could possibly lead to the overhuman as an evolutionary concept. In this section, we meet the antithesis to the overhuman and the antithesis of some of the values that people might have that lead away from the overhuman, uh, the last man. And before we get into this, I think it's going to be useful to talk about evolution as Nietzsche saw it. So as I mentioned, Nietzsche was writing around 30 years after Darwin came up with his theory of evolution. And while Nietzsche definitely does believe that entities develop through time, his, his view on evolution is actually fairly nuanced and is different from Darwin's in a couple of key ways. Um, so in this section we meet the last human, which Nietzsche and Zarathustra are sort of painting a broad picture of as sort of a despicable being that if you have the types of traits that he describes in this section through generations as you have those traits and as you you instill those in the friends that you have around you and you instill those in your children and they instill it into their children eventually over the course of several to many generations a lower type of evolutionary being comes to exist that sort of models what Nietzsche and Zarathustra are really scared about the previous two sections sort of described in ascendancy and evolution, whereas this section sort of a descendancy or a descent in evolution. And in Darwin's theory of evolution, as Nietzsche saw it, there's sort of this idea of survival of the fittest and things through time becoming more and more perfect and more interesting and more evolved. And while in certain situations that's true, I think that 
probably most people's understanding of evolution is it's sort of always a a continual ascent whereas nietzsche with his view of will to power as being the basis of reality says you know it's not necessarily true that as beings evolve they become better and it's by no means guaranteed that they will become better that if you actually look at how life develops instead of each individual species becoming more and more fierce, more and more camouflaged, more and more intelligent, more and more insert whatever virtue or characteristic that you want to describe, Nietzsche sees will to power and entities that sort of comprise the organic version of will to power as being things that become better and better as a group of exploiting the environment that they're in. So how can we think about that? With Darwinian evolution, there's sort of this belief that, you know, okay, well, DNA started out as being a self-replicating organism, and then through time, random mutations came in, and then some were adaptive to its survival, and so DNA became a single-celled organism, became a multi-celled organism, became sort of the lizard creatures became bigger and bigger dinosaurs and then the dinosaurs got wiped out so these small little rodent creatures started to evolve and become more complex and through a series of random random events in genetic mismatches became more and more complex creatures and so there's two ideas in there that Nietzsche takes issue with the first is that a series of accidental variations over a very long period of time or what gives rise to more complex forms of life. The second thing in Darwinian evolution, and this is probably what most people think about, is that it's always sort of an upward trend. Whereas Nietzsche and certain other theorists in the field of evolution, they see those two things as being very different, especially Nietzsche. So the first thing there about a series of random events that over the course of millions of years lead to a very slow progression and change, um, there's an alternate view of evolution, Lamarckian evolution, that basically says that instead of just random variations and mutations in genetic material leading to change, that the needs of certain organisms are what give rise to different traits in evolution. So a fairly classic example is, uh, look at a giraffe. And so where Darwin's theory would say giraffes developed their long necks through a series of millions and millions of years of accidental variations that, oh, okay, this group of deer-type creature accidentally gave birth to one that had a slightly longer neck so was able to get better leaves on the tree and then that one therefore had a better chance of survival and passing on its genetics and then maybe once its offspring had another genetic abnormality that led to having a slightly longer neck, that one had a better chance of survival, and on and on through the generations, and it takes a long time to develop this long neck. Lamarckian evolution is very different, where it, it sort of puts the, the need for having a certain faculty as the reason for why things develop. So because a giraffe would need to have a long neck, the idea is somehow that necessity sort of much more quickly creates this evolutionary development of having a long neck. And 
that doesn't really make sense to a lot of people uh, nowadays, but I think some of the research that's come out, at least in the last couple of years, about epigenetic evolution, where it's not necessarily random changes in the DNA, but even your parents' experiences or the parents of different organisms' experiences, whether they went through a certain type of trauma or they went through a certain weird sort of period of necessity, gives rise to much more rapid changes in evolution. There is actually scientific basis for believing that this Lamarckian view of need and necessity being the, the mother of invention, as it were, need or necessity being the the cause of evolution that that's actually there's something to that and Nietzsche very much believes that will to power operates that way and so while certainly genetic mutation over a long period of time is something that happens Nietzsche very strongly believes that the necessity for something and the ability to take advantage of a part of the environment that is currently not being taken advantage of is certainly something that takes place uh, so there's an example some people might have heard of this, uh, the Congo, the area in Africa. Uh, I'm unsure of the exact dates, but something like 4,000 years ago, uh, this very dense jungle was actually a grass plain. And then because of different climatic events where things changed, this savanna area, this grassland area, actually turned into very dense jungle very rapidly. And so all the different animals that actually lived in those grasslands found themselves all of a sudden sort of in a jungle and it's very interesting you can go online or do some research and see that the previously adapted animals that lived in the plain within 4,000 years which Darwinian evolution can't really account for within 4,000 years you get these really odd behaviors where these animals that were perfectly adapted to a certain situation were very quickly able to change their genetics change their biology change their adaptive functions and all of a sudden you get deer who can swim underwater for a couple minutes at a time and eat fish as opposed to deer that 4,000 years ago would have been grazing in the fields. Uh, even things within human evolution if we're all supposed to have left Africa say 200, 300,000 years ago it, Darwinian evolution would suggest that the change in people's skin color would take millions and millions of years and thousands of generations to actually change from people originally having very dark skin color to having, say, white skin color or the more tan skin color that you see in Asian people or Aboriginal people in the Americas and Australia. And so there, there are many examples that you can think of that the time scale just doesn't work for Darwin and it points to some sort of Lamarckian aspect to evolution which Nietzsche definitely believes in. Uh, the second thing is that it's not just uh, according to Darwin's theory or most people's understanding of Darwin's theory it's not just a getting better or getting more ferocious or getting uh, getting better all the time. There's certainly some some things evolve in a downward trend and then some things just sort of cap out. So in terms of organisms that have capped out, think about alligators or crocodiles or sharks. The, the latest thinking on that and the best scientific thinking on that in the fossil record suggests that many species, specifically those ones, have actually been the same for 400 million years. 
it goes against the Darwinian idea that things are constantly changing, constantly evolving. So Nietzsche by no means thinks that things will, by their own course, keep changing. And when it comes to humans, Nietzsche in the last couple of sections in this one definitely sees our conscious intention and then, as we're going to see in this section, some of the things that we're doing and some of the uh, aspects of culture that allow us to sort of soften he sees those as being a very bad thing that could lead to our downward evolution. So not just it's not just that organisms can stay flat, like crocodiles or sharks, but there are a number of organisms that just sort of went down in the evolutionary scale. So birds, for example. Velo uh, birds are supposed to have evolved from raptors, velociraptors. And so... If you're looking at it with sort of an initial Darwinian view of, oh, well, you know, things will keep getting better and more complex and whatever, uh, a velociraptor, which the thinking from paleontologists goes that they were incredibly efficient hunters, very dangerous, very deadly, very fast, worked in groups, so they were obviously fairly intelligent. Those animals, just through the course of evolution, became really ridiculous animals like turkeys and finches and bluebirds and random things that are a progression but they're a progression downwards in the way that you would normally think about things becoming worse than what they are and so Nietzsche in his view of evolution here it's not really Darwinian he's sort of taking this Lamarckian view where often necessity and uh, necessity can be the cause of very rapid changes and also he, noted, he knows that sometimes evolution doesn't necessarily go up. Sometimes it stays the same, sometimes it goes down, and it's more to fit whatever niche of the environment that can be taken advantage of by this group of organisms. So it's a bit complicated, uh, but I think that's all you really need to know. He has some other thoughts on evolution, but they're, they're sort of murky, and he didn't write too, too much about it. But you can sort of gather that from what he has written in some of his notebooks and then in this book, too. So let's get into the actual section. So Zarathustra's standing there. He's looking at the people after he's just gone on for two sections about the overhuman and some of the characteristics that he really, really likes in human beings because he sees them as being the, the necessary virtues and the necessary predispositions people need to have to sort of not so much consciously although some of it is conscious, uh, set themselves up to continue the upward ascent in evolution that he wants, understanding perfectly well that evolution can go the other way. And since Nietzsche and Zarathustra are very big fans of interesting human beings and ever greater complexity and whatever, he's sort of rallying behind this idea of, okay, guys, we stand at a crossroads here where we have a choice. We understand enough about reality, enough about evolution, enough about human personalities and characteristics, enough about sociology that we have this choice where we can either make it a personal goal to improve ourselves and work towards the overhuman, or we can just sort of get comfortable and relaxed and through time that leads to an uglier version of humanity. So he stands there, he says, there they stand, there they laugh, they do not understand me, I am not the mouth for these ears. Must one first smash their ears before they learn to hear with their eyes? Must one rumble like kettle drums and preachers of repentance? Or do they only believe a stammerer? 
And so here's something that we're going to see come up quite a bit later in the book where Zarathustra realizes that talking to the crowd, talking to the mass, talking to most people is a bad idea because they don't understand him. Uh, that most people don't have the experience, don't have the insights that this guy has. And so uh, I sort of see it as like if Zarathustra was standing there trying to teach people university-level trigonometry and all these people have only studied grade 2 math, they will have absolutely no basis of understanding what he's saying. And that most people, when they're confronted with something that they don't understand or they don't know or they can't quite comprehend, instead of being curious, and I think you can think about this in terms of people that you may know or have encountered or even friends or family, there's a lot of people out there that when they're confronted with something they don't understand, they immediately denigrate it. They have this defensive system that prevents them from having to expend the mental energy and open themselves up to a new idea. They just say, no, 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 this is crazy. I'm, I'm shutting this down so that I don't have to consider it. And the way they do that is they try and laugh at it. They try and denigrate it. And it, they actively try and make it something that's stupid so that they don't have to think about it and so that they don't look worse by comparison. So you can think about Maybe some people that you went to school with who, when, when some really interesting class is happening or someone's talking about something very interesting, they just sort of scoff and say, oh, that's stupid, that's for nerds, that's for whatever, like, oh, get out of here. It's often a weird defense mechanism that people who are incapable of doing those things, who don't see the value in it because they can't see the value in it. No one who only has a grade three understanding of math could see the value of university level trigonometry, even though it's the basis of many great things. And so in order to maintain their own image of superiority, they just put it down. And so Zarathustra is sort of running into that. And this line here about having to smash someone's ears before they learn to hear with their eyes. That's a really fascinating one. And I think it goes to some of the stuff I've said about the way that we need to learn when we approach this book is very visual. You need to picture things and you need to really say like, you really need to say to yourself, is this good? Does this look good? Does this look bad? There's countless examples of things that are just so obviously bad that people, instead of just looking at it and sort of sensing what that means for life and feeling with their natural instincts towards that thing, they, they, you'll try and talk to them and say, like, this is not good. So an example is maybe for my American listeners, this is a better example than elsewhere, but it's certainly on the rise everywhere else. Very obese people. If you're to just look at someone who's obese, you'd say, oh, that's not good. Like, oh, that's that human doesn't look healthy. That That's not a beautiful sight. Like, that needs to change. Please work out. Please eat better. Please whatever. Please just take care of that. And I think a lot of people, instead of looking at the actual situation and sort of using their natural judgment on whether that's a good or bad thing, they... They hide behind their wall of ideas or their their preconceived notions about things and they say, no, the, that person enjoys what they're doing, that's fine. Or, oh no, that's just their natural body image, that's fine. And there's this weird thing that a lot of people and a lot of people who think that they're smart will just refuse to actually look at a situation and actually try and see what's happening in front of them. And what they do is they... 
they use their mindset and they sort of map onto the world what their mindset is, what their world philosophy is, and they justify everything that they see in terms of that, and they try and say, well, if it makes them happy, they should eat whatever they want. If they do this, that should they should do whatever they want. And Zarathustra here, and the way that we need to approach this book, is to really take a look at what value system we're operating with, what world philosophy we are either consciously or unconsciously viewing the world from, what lens we're looking at the world from, and look at and challenge the value of that way of looking at the world. And so to someone who's morbidly obese and riding around Disneyland in a scooter and they've got their butt hanging over both sides of it, that's a lot of people will just say, oh, you know, that's my right as an American to eat whatever the hell I want and do whatever the hell I want. Uh, people put their mind, they, they use their mindset to block themselves off from having to actually see what's in front of them and make individual judgments on each case. And so Zarathustra is sort of here saying that. And so as we go through the book, you have to think very critically about the lens through which you're looking at the world. And if something in this book makes you feel bad don't just accept the bad feeling as being true try and think about why you feel bad and try and think about things more and more in the sense of how does this actually look from the perspective of life is this good for life is this bad for life is this the sort of behavior that leads to an improvement in humanity is this the type of thing that leads to a decrease in the level of humanity and it's very hard to do but that's sort of what we need to do to get through this book and actually make real change zarathustra continues they have something of which they are proud, but what do they call that which makes them proud? Culture, they call it. It distinguishes them from goat herds. Therefore, they dislike hearing the word despising said of them. So now I will speak to their pride. So this makes me recall something that I've brought up before where a lot of people in civil society will look very disparagingly upon strong negative emotions so if you're at a dinner party and you have an opinion that is not polite or or you have an opinion that is you're angry about something if you, if you were standing in a group of people and said oh this thing just pisses me off or this thing really makes me angry this is so stupid that we're doing this a lot of people, because they think that they're cultured, they'll they'll take a stance where they say, oh my, I, I can't believe the faux pas this person's making bringing this opinion up. How gauche of him to feel negative. And that's sort of what Zarathustra here is saying. Where oftentimes the so-called smart people or the intelligentsia or the cultured people, they try and strike a pose as being a cultured person and that prevents them from really exploring all the different perspectives that you need to explore to actually have a good view on an issue and also prevents them from acknowledging the negative emotions as being potentially useful in either your decision-making faculties or your motivational faculties. So Zarathustra goes on to say, well, you know what, they don't like hearing, they don't like saying that they could despise anything because people who are cultured at dinner parties don't want to, don't want other people to think that they could hate someone that's so mean, that's so cruel, and so he decides to speak to their pride. And that's where he goes into the speech about the last human. And so Zarathustra speaks to the people. 
The time has now come for the human to set a goal for itself. The time has now come for the human to plant the seed of its highest hope. And so back when I, earlier in this lecture when I was talking about evolution and sort of where humans now stand and really actually for the first time in many, many millennia probably, probably the first time in history, humans understand enough about reality to actually be able to make a conscious decision about the way that we want history to go. Uh, up till now, things have pretty much just been madness. It's, history is the autobiography of a madman, that things have just sort of happened, and that all the ideas that we've had, the best ideas that we've had, according to Nietzsche and Zarathustra, have been useful, I guess, in getting us to where we are, but we now stand at the first point in history where, based on our science and based on our philosophy and our understanding of reality and humanity and psychology and everything, we, we actually stand at a very interesting point in history where we can understand how to make these broad decisions, understand that it's on us to make these decisions because God is dead, we no longer have these religious weird stories or books to guide us. We understand too much to actually believe in those ways of looking at the world anymore. And that because we understand so much, we need to get rid of those and start trying to do things on our own and start thinking about each thing critically according to the proper ways of seeing the world, which Zarathustra and Nietzsche are going to spend the rest of this book sort of going through. So the time has now come for the human to set a goal for itself and to set to plant the seed of its highest hope. Its soil is still rich enough for that, but this soil will someday become poor from cultivation, and no tall tree will be able to grow from it. Alas, the time will come when the human will no longer shoot the arrow of its yearning over beyond the human, and the string of its bow will have forgotten how to whir. I say to you, one must still have chaos within in order to give birth to a dancing star. I say to you, you still have chaos within you. And he goes on lamenting that the time will come when the human will give birth to no more stars. Alas, there will come the time of the most despicable human who is no longer able to despise itself, the last human. And so along with the idea that Nietzsche has here where, okay, we, we know enough that we can't rely on our old religious valuations of the world, our old platonic way of looking at the world. We can't, we can't use that anymore. We need to use something else. He also sees this great danger coming over humans that along with becoming so good at having an understanding and a mastery over reality, the ability to build big cities where the elements in the outside world are sort of kept at bay, where there, we don't, any longer really have to worry about a barbarian horde coming over the hill and pillaging and killing everyone. He sees that humans and humanity are in this very interesting situation, we're still in it today, where if we don't plan our lives and plan our societies and plan our nations and plan our countries and plan everything consciously and try and challenge ourselves and try and live by some of the things that he outlined in the previous two sections, that eventually this will lead to that downward evolution, that a group of interesting creatures who 
because we've been faced with so many challenges, we've developed so many interesting aspects of who we are, that if we take that challenge away from us, we'll, we'll, it will be similar from a velociraptor turning into a turkey. It will be similar to humans becoming similar to just algae, one-celled organisms that are very boring, that don't really do anything, but take up a lot of space. It's just an organism that has figured out a way within the, its current environment to survive and thrive. And so Zarathustra and Nietzsche's conversation here is saying, we know enough about reality, but that has also led to us feeling very safe in our societies. And that sort of safety will cushion us and make us soft. And all the, the things that we need to survive, that madness within us, that chaos within us, that, that weird human-animal passionate energy that daily amount of willpower that we have within us we need to take that and channel it otherwise it will just go out and so he goes on to discuss the the last human and i think we can even before we get into his description just talk about that a bit more where if you if you think about people that you know that have grown up in cities and have been born to nice households and you know, went to nice schools and and did all the right things. In terms of human evolution, that's an incredible thing. It's an incredible thing that we've come from being these weird ape creatures to having beautiful neighborhoods, beautiful cities where everyone's safe. You don't have to worry about anything. You can go to school for six hours a day. Then you come home from school. You probably don't do any homework. You just play video games all day. And you can sort of get the sense that, like, yes, we stand at a very interesting point in history where we have all this science and understanding and all that, but the characteristics that led to that, that sort of human drive, that human love of life and doing things, that's leading to a situation where we can easily get soft. And so some people you may know, even you yourself, I know for me this was certainly true in many ways, um, the sort of growing up in a, an environment where there is no pressure, where there's nothing negative happening, you can very easily just become soft and slack and grow fat and grow lazy and lose all your willpower and lose all your drive to do anything. And Nietzsche sort of sees culture and, and the ever-growing bounds of civilization and the the lower requirements on each individual person to really do anything as leading to just a generation generation upon generation of soft people. So Nietzsche starts to describe the last human, and the first thing he says is a quote that he ascribes to the last human. What is love? What is creation? What is yearning? What is a star? Thus asks the last human, and then blinks. And so... For me, the way I interpret this, I think that in some ways it's talking about the scientific mindset. Um, what is love? What is creation? What is yearning? What is a star? There's a tendency I've noticed in modern society where <laughs> if you can't measure something, it's unimportant. And so if you're to talk to a scientist about what's love, what's yearning, what's creation, what's a star... They'd, they'd 
fall flat on their faces trying to give you an explanation. They'd say, oh, well, you know, love is the release of serotonin in this system, and the limbic system responds this way, and creation is, you know, when uh, an active organism decides to build with this, this, this. And they give a rational explanation for things that are really an emergent process out of the living, passionate organism. Love, creation, yearning, a star, being a star. Like these are things that the realization of these things comes from the animal energy within us and that this overfocus on rationality and this overfocus on rational thinking makes people very proud of themselves because they think that rationality is sort of the be-all and end-all of existence, which it isn't, and we'll get into a lot of that in this podcast. It's certainly helpful, but it's by no means the, the end of creation. Uh, many of the people I know are this type of person, where they say, oh, well, what is love? What is creation? What is yearning? What is a star? And it's it's not necessarily a bunch of oafs dragging their knuckles along. Very educated people, people that you might work with, people that definitely professors think this definitely many people in society think this way they're very proud of their rationality they're very smart and they think they know best and so they say this what is love what is creation what is yearning etc thus asked the last human and then blinks and i don't know what it was but when i first read that i just laughed out loud i said that's perfect they blink and that comes up a couple other times in this section where they blink and they they to me, I don't know why, but it just I picture this person and it shows how unknowing they are. How not just how unknowing they are of what they're actually talking about in terms of love and yearning and creation and star, but they're unknowing that they they don't even know that they don't know what those things are. That when you're being rational, you're trying to say, well, you know, like you have a nice life and let's live in a house and I should be able to play video games and I should be able to get fat and go to Disneyland and that's what I want to do. Like, what do you mean love creation and being a star? What is this? Like, that's crazy talk. And they just sort of blink and they, they, they're just so unaware of how little they're aware of and yet they're proud of their rationality and proud of how smart they are. And so that sort of blinking symbolism to me I don't know, it, it, it strikes me as being very funny and showing just how stupid people are. For the earth has now become small, and upon it hops the last human, who makes everything small. Its race is as inexterminable as the ground flea. The last human lives the longest. We have contrived happiness, say the last humans, and they blink. We have logically built all the things that one needs to live a okay life, and then that's all you need to do. You... you you're born and then you go to school and you pick a good major and you get a job and you get a nice wife and you settle down like we've invented happiness we've shut out all the threats we have good medicine we have good walls to keep the barbarians out and so these last humans they they just continue to go on with these very ignorant views of reality that even though humans are very smart and these last humans are clever i guess these people tend to think that they've got everything figured out and that, you know, all the problems in the world have been solved and we can just sort of, like, get along with living now. And that, to echo something that I said in an earlier, earlier podcast, this is sort of where, like, oh, we're at the end of history. All the weird stuff that happened before us is done. Now we've figured it out and we have rationality and we have science and we have technology and we'll just continue building big cities and that'll be the end of it and we'll all just sort of, like, go on and be sort of content. That's what Nietzsche's trying to paint here. They have left the regions where the living was hard, for one needs the warmth. One still loves one's neighbor and rubs up against him, for one needs the warmth. 
To fall ill and harbor mistrust is in their eyes sinful. One must proceed with care. A fool whoever still stumbles over stones or humans. It's just sort of a continual picture that Nietzsche's drawing here, that Zarathustra's drawing here, of people who are gladly forsaking struggle and gladly forsaking higher concepts of more passionate ways of being for sort of a moderate level of contentedness. You know, okay, I'm going to... I'm going to leave the country. I'm going to leave the cold regions. I'm just going to move to where it's warm and there's a lot of people because it's a it's a bunch easier and I can take it easy and play video games and get fat. Um, a little poison now and then that makes for agreeable dreams and a lot of poison at the end for an agreeable dying. So, you know, oh, oh yes, I, I like a glass of wine every now and then. That sort of calms me down. And when I die, I want a bunch of drugs put in me so that I fade away fairly nicely. Uh, one continues to work for work as entertainment, but one takes care lest the inter- entertainment become a strain. Well, you know, I, I like to go to work and work my 40 hours, but I, then I like to go home and just sort of sit around and take the dog for a walk and do this and do that. Oh, it, Again, just showing Nietzsche painting these pictures of people who don't challenge themselves, people who don't try and attempt great things that take a lot of effort. And it's and Nietzsche's idea is that it's that necessity for putting great effort into things that not only builds the thing that you're working on to a a high degree, but also builds us as people. If you work hard at anything, if you struggle through anything, the amount of character that you develop from that, the amount of insights into life that you develop from that, the amount of skills that you develop from that, the, the type of interesting human being that you become from doing those things, it's not only just interesting for you and it doesn't just give you a bunch of interesting stories to tell about whatever it is you're working on or all these wild dates you've been on or whatever. You you push the boundaries of human experience and human knowledge and you, you learn a lot about life and the world and you can pass those things on to your friends and your family and your kids and your communities and your societies and you can you can do really great things. But if you're just... You know, you go into work and you, you you work because it's entertaining, but you don't work too hard. You don't try and get too rich. You don't try and get too poor. You don't, who wants to rule? Who wants to obey? Like, if you're not pushing it, if you're just sort of going in and going through the motions, you're not developing yourself. You're not developing humanity. And you're just slackening. And everything becomes comfortable. And then even the way, because you're probably going to be someone who, becomes like a grade three math person that when someone even is trying to talk about grade 12 trig like you're not even going to respect that you're going to oh get out of here with your stupid math who are who's this guy this not pushing ourselves to really expand who we are just leads to a continual degradation of the human spirit and the human community and over time based on nietzsche's views of evolution that can lead to well humans becoming whatever the primate version of a turkey is like a velociraptor becomes a turkey and humans become the last human Uh, formerly the entire world was mad say their finest and they blink so again these smart people and i'm sure you probably saw them at your universities you probably learned from them maybe you are one of them they say yeah i don't understand what those egyptians were doing i don't understand what those crazy those 
dukes and kings and people in medieval Europe and all these emperors and whatever in, in Persia and China. Like, what are all these people doing? They're being crazy. They're doing all these weird things. Uh, obviously, they were being irrational. They didn't have science. They didn't have all the wonderful things about rational reason thinking. Uh, the, the entire world was mad, and we finally figured it out. And then they blink, showing just how little they know about what it means to be human. One is clever and knows all that has happened, so there's no end to their mockery. One still quarrels, but one soon makes up, else it is bad for the stomach. So these people, they're not even energetic enough, passionate enough humans to have enemies. That, that's a common thing in human history, where people had enemies. And having an enemy, it's interesting. I'll, I'll maybe describe uh, an interesting theory that a former roommate of mine had. He asked me one time if I had a work rival. Someone in my office who I really didn't like and they didn't really like me. And I said, no, there's a bunch of people I don't like, but no one that I would say is a rival because rival in some sense is competitive. And he said, yeah, I have a work rival. I said, well, okay, interesting. Tell me about it. And so he said, you know, having that rival at work, someone who you really respect and you don't necessarily like, it challenges you to be the best person so that you can beat them. So it challenges you to continually get better and improve at your job and be a better version of yourself constantly versus not really having an enemy. You, again, sort of slacken and become the last human. And so it's interesting. like you, The capacity to have an enemy, the capacity to have a rival, the capacity to have great passion and great interest and great love, great, great creativity, great yearning, wanting to be a star, all these sort of passionate, animalistic things that modern rationality and modern scientific thought completely disregards. These are, for Nietzsche, a very important thing. And by no means does he see reason and rationality as something that should be thrown out. He just thinks that a lot of people over-rationalize over and hyper-rationalize, and they throw out all the stuff that can't be explained with rationality, and that's sort of where life gets its interest and its forward motion from. The, the section ends with, we have invented happiness, say the last humans, and they blink. And so it just sums up this section where Nietzsche is going on and on about people who sort of miss the point of life. They miss the, the passionate lived experience where you look inside yourself and you try and be the best version that you can be. And that if you do that, you're not just doing it for yourself, you're doing it for your friends. The, the effects redound to your friends and your family and your community and your kids. And then if you teach your kids to do that, if you develop character in them, then they'll understand those things and they'll continue pushing the envelope of what's possible for the human in an upward direction rather than just, oh, you know, kids, like don't enroll in sports, don't try hard in school, just play some video games, watch some TV and get lazy and slack and fat. And then eventually... We just become sort of a really ugly group of people that, compared to hum compared to great humans as Nietzsche describes them, are sort of despicable. And so that finishes Zarathustra's prologue, uh, his first speech. Uh, there are a couple more sections in the actual prologue, but again, they're less overtly philosophical. And so again, the people totally misunderstand him and they say, oh, give us this last human, that sounds good. We'll give you the overman, we don't want to do that. We, we'd rather just be comfortable in our nice city here or whatever. And they all just laugh at him and Zarathustra again starts to recognize, they don't understand me, I'm not the mouth for these ears. And, and that's something that, I don't know, I think anyone who's tried to teach someone anything 
can understand that a lot of times it's not just what you're trying to say. You could come to someone with the most true, accurate thing in the world, but if you have a bad audience or an uncaring audience, it doesn't matter. You, you, you'd have to smash their ears before they learn to see with their eyes. You, you, you can't get through to them. Um, and so that ends this section. He, he goes on a bit more to say, I've lived too long in the mountains, and I, I seem to be okay. My soul is fine, and but they just don't understand me. They think that I'm this weird guy who's I'm a mocker in fearful antics. They think I'm some monster that's trying to hurt them. So that ends this section, where Zarathustra sort of, after having talked about the great virtues and the things that make humans great, that were not an end, we're not a goal, that we're a means, that humans are a bridge, that humans that are virtuous and love their virtue and are very passionate can lead to the overhuman and then contrasting it with, okay, well, if you're just sort of slack and relaxed and not and taking it easy too much and not really challenging yourself, based on how reality works with evolution and based on how human psychology works within ourselves, he sort of sees, guys, you can live a much better life if you do the things that happen that he describes in sections three and four. And then he describes section five as sort of the antithesis. So thanks for sticking with me. These past three sections have been very long, but almost of necessity. There's a lot of very condensed philosophy in here. But I think having gone through it and given some examples that I've made it a lot clearer and you guys might have a much better idea of what the rest of the book's going to be about. So join me next time. We're going to hopefully blow through the rest of the prologue because it's mainly narration and there's there's some interesting things in there, but it's uh, it's certainly not as compact as the first five sections that we went through. So join me next time and I will talk to you in Zarathustra's prologue part six.